0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Draitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 19. We have an excellent program here today, something really special, a lot of key information for people to understand. And I hope that this is what you're tuning into Counterpunch Radio for on a weekly basis, uh, insights, analysis from a critical perspective on the left, but one that is independent. I mean, look at all of these important events that are happening around us, whether we're talking Syria, Ukraine, Africa, Latin America, uh, the situation in the United States domestically, the circus that is presidential elections, all of this is presented with a critical perspective on Counterpunch. And in many ways, Counterpunch sets itself apart, I think, even from the other alternative media and the pseudo-alternative media. And I think that that is really part of the mission. So if you value that, if you agree with that, I would urge you to consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. Um, Counterpunch really supports itself to a large extent on those subscriptions it's a great way to support the counterpunch project it's a great way to keep counterpunch going and of course it's always great to get something in print when everything is now digital and everything is on kindles and all of the rest of that i like getting a magazine in my mailbox i like flipping through it i like looking at the artwork so um i hope you agree with me and i hope you'll consider getting that subscription because one of the other things that the subscriptions help to fund it helps to fund counterpunch's publications and and specifically the publication of the books that counterpunch puts out there on a regular basis at the highest level if i do say so myself and that's a good segue for me because today i have the wonderful privilege of introducing michael hudson to the program uh dr hudson is the author of a very new very important book from counterpunch uh entitled killing the host how financial parasites and debt bondage destroy the global economy um if you're not familiar with uh, uh, with Michael Hudson's work, I think you absolutely should be. It's really, I mean, truly some of the best uh, economic and political analysis that you're going to find anywhere. He is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Uh, you can find his book, of course, through Counterpunch and his uh, his other books, including The Bubble and Beyond, Super Imperialism, a number of others. You can go to his website, michael-hudson.com. All of that out of the way. Michael Hudson, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: It's good to be here.
0: Um, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been excited to talk to you for a long time, and I think it's really, uh, it's really relevant right now considering everything that's happened. Um, so I want to begin our conversation here talking a little bit about the title of your book, as I mentioned already, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy. Um, it's a very apt metaphor, quite frankly, talking about parasitism and parasites. So this parasitical finance capital is really what you're writing about, and you explain in the book that it essentially survives by feeding off what we might call the real economy. So I want you to, if you could, draw out that analogy a little bit. What, is, what does that mean? How does it operate like a parasite? And what are some of the symptoms or products of this parasitical relationship?
1: Well, economists for the last 50 years have used the term host economy or a country that lets in American and other foreign investment. So this is already a term that appears in most uh, pro-financial uh, mainstream uh, textbooks. Uh, but the uh, the term parasitism has been applied to finance by Martin Luther and others, but usually in the sense that you just uh, talked about, simply taking something from the host. Uh, but that's not how uh, parasites really work in nature. It's much more complicated. Uh, the biological parasitism uh, is more complex, but at the same time a better metaphor uh, for economics, because how does a parasite take over a host? It has The first thing it has is enzymes. So it numbs the host, so if it stings it, to get its claws into it, uh, there's there's a uh, soporific uh, anesthetic. The, the host doesn't realize it's being taken over. But then the parasite sends enzymes into the brain. And a parasite could not take anything at all from the host unless it took over the brain. And the brain, of course, in modern economies is the government and the educational system and the way that uh, governments and uh, societies make their economic models. And in nature, the biological parasite makes the host think that uh, the free rider, the parasite, is a baby, is part of its body. And uh, if it can convince it that it's part of the body, the the host actually protects the parasite over itself. And that's what's happened really to the financial sector uh, a century ago two centuries ago, three centuries ago, and all the way back to the Bronze Age, you have almost every society uh, realizing that the great destabilizing force was finance, uh, was debt uh, growing exponentially, uh, leading the creditors to foreclose on uh, uh, the assets of debtors and uh, end up uh, reducing societies to uh, debt bondage and ultimately to serfdom after the Roman Empire. So uh, what's happened uh, today is, uh, is that the financial sector. All of a sudden, this happened about hundred years ago, basically in America, by uh, John Bates Clark and the uh, pro-financial uh, ideologues. Said, wait a minute, finance is not external to the economy. It's not extraneous. It doesn't. It's uh, part of the economy, just like uh, landlords are part of the economy. And the more the financial sector takes out of the economy, the more the uh, it it's part because it's part of the economy. It's growing. Now, uh, a year or two ago, you had Lloyd Blankfein of uh, Goldman Sachs say, well, the reason Goldman Sachs uh, uh, managers are paid more than anybody else is because they're so highly productive. And the question is, productive of what? The national income accounts say that everybody is productive, uh... in proportion to the amount of money they take it doesn't matter whether it's uh... extractive income or productive income it doesn't matter whether it's by producing things or simply taking things from other people or simply by the fraud that uh, goldman sachs and citigroup and bank of america and the others have paid tens of millions of dollars uh... in fines for any way of earning income is field, uh, is uh... considered to be as productive as uh anything else. This is a parasite mentality it, because it denies that there's any such thing as unearned income, denies that there's anything such as a, a free lunch. And Milton Friedman uh, got famous uh, for promoting the idea that uh, there's no such thing as a free, month, free lunch, when actually everybody on Wall Street knows that's what the economy is all about. Yeah. It's all about how to get a free lunch. What can we get for nothing?
0: Yeah and what's interesting to me about this this uh this analogy or this metaphor that we're talking about is Uh, To get to the root of the issue, we hear the term neoliberalism all the time, and I think that that sort of goes hand in hand. But neoliberalism as an ideology, I think that that's used to describe more the environment within which this sort of parasitical finance capital can operate. Um, So talk a little bit, if you could, about the relationship between a term like neoliberalism as an ideology and finance capital as a structure
1: almost all of our vocabulary today is uh what orwell would call doublethink. Yeah. uh if you're going to call something uh uh, uh anti liberal uh and against everything that adam smith and john stuart mill and all the classical economists talk about you you pretend to be neoliberal. uh the whole focus of adam smith john stuart mill a, uh the whole 19th century classical economy, was to draw a distinction between productive and unproductive labor, between people who earn their income by making wages and profits and people who don't earn their income but, as John Stuart Mill said, uh, get rich in their sleep, uh, in other words, the landowners and the financial sector. Uh, and neoliberalism says uh, uh, the first thing it does, uh, I think you can get an idea by what did the neoliberals, the Chicago school, do Uh, when they took over Chile. The first thing they did was close down every economics department in the country. Uh, They started an assassination program of uh, uh, left-wing professors, professors of economic thought. They banned the history of economic thought uh, and imposed uh, neoliberalism by gunpoint. Uh, The idea of neoliberal free markets is you cannot have a neoliberal free market unless you have totalitarian control of the academic System. You have to censor any idea that there's ever been an alternative to uh, the free market. So, what you have is a rewriting of economic history to uh, deny everything that Adam Smith, Mill, and all the classical economists uh, wrote about, and to pretend that uh, what the uh, classical economists wanted was to restore feudalism not to free uh, industrial capitalism from feudalism. You have uh, an inversion of all of the common vocabulary that people uh, uh, will use. So the idea of uh, parasitism is it's replaced uh, everyday words and everyday uh, meaning and vocabulary with uh, words for its opposite. It's exactly like a... Uh,
0: Double think. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting, and I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but you you mentioned the example of Chile in 1973, of course, the assassination or the the removal of Allende, the coup against Allende, the imposition of the Pinochet dictatorship, which was, of course, a Kissinger Nixon operation, as we know. But what's interesting about that is Chile was essentially transformed into a sort of an experimental laboratory for the imposition of the Chicago school economic model of what we now would call neoliberalism. And later in our conversation, I want to talk a little bit about some more recent laboratories that we have seen in Eastern Europe and and now actually in Southern Europe as well. But again, um, this this, this question of neoliberalism, that is to say the combination or the relationship between totalitarian-ish government and this form of economics, that's really important point, I think.
1: That's right. Neoliberals say they're against government, but what they're against is democratic government. Yes. The only kind of governments they support are the kind of governments that they're supporting in uh, Ukraine now uh, or, uh, or Greece. Uh, the government that is uh, German, Wolfgang Schäuble, said, democracy doesn't count. Uh, so yes. neoliberals want only the kind of government that will uh, like, uh, create money for the banks not to increase the economy governments uh, that basically are oligarchic and uh... uh... here uh, people like aristotle talked about this uh... more than two thousand years ago aristotle said that democracy is the first is, uh, the stage immediately preceding oligarchy that all economies are go through three stages that, uh, repeating, a, a circle, uh, from democracy into oligarchy, and then the oligarchs make themselves hereditary, as uh, George Bush, uh, then, uh, the other Bush, uh, Jeb Bush, just uh, wants to abolish the inheritance tax. They, be, they make themselves into a hereditary aristocracy, and then some of the aristocratic families fight against the other families and take the public into their uh, camp and uh, promote democracy, and you have the whole cycle going all over again. That's the kind of cycle we're having now. Tra- just like in ancient Athens a transition from democracy to oligarchy on its way to becoming uh, a aristocracy of the power elite
0: yeah. And again, um, I, I want to return to the book in a second, but I just have to uh, interject as well. One uh, particular economist, of course, that hasn't yet been mentioned, Karl Marx. Um, and he, it's an inversion of Marx as well in what we're talking about, because, of course, Marx and the labor theory of value, right, that that value is, is derived from labor. And in fact, the parasitical finance capital is quite the opposite of that.
1: Well, I think there's a misinterpretation of the labor theory of value. Why did Marx and the other classical economists, uh, uh, William Petty, uh, uh, Smith, and the others, talk about the labor theory of value? It was to isolate that part of price that wasn't value. Mm -hmm. The whole purpose of the labor theory of value was to define economic rent as something that was not value, something that was extraneous to production. Uh, And it was sort of a a free lunch of uh, a price that was charged to consumers and others that had no basis in labor, no basis in real cost, but was purely a monopoly price. Uh, And uh, this was mainly the survivals of the feudal uh, epoch, uh, the landowners who were the heirs of the military conquerors, uh, and the financial sector. Uh, So the whole idea of the labor theory of value was to divide the economy between uh, price, uh, excessive uh, uh, price gouging, uh, and labor. And the whole objective of uh, the classical economists was to bring prices in line with value, uh, to prevent a free ride, to prevent Mm -hmm. monopolies to prevent uh, a landlord class, and really to free society from the legacy of uh, feudalism and the military conquests that uh, Europe had a thousand years ago and that still underlie our property relations.
0: That's that's a great point and actually you segued me into the next uh the next issue I wanted to touch on you've actually you've mentioned the term already a number of times but rent and the concept of rent now of course you know we all know rent in terms of what we have to pay every month to the to the landlord but we might not think about the what it means conceptually and actually it's it's one of the I would say uh fabrics with which you've woven this book together are one of the running themes rent extraction and the role of rent extraction in the economic development of what we've now termed this parasitical relationship. So explain a little bit, uh, you know, for, for layman, you know, what this means, rent extraction, and how the evolution of this concept, I think, is really a framework for understanding how we've come to this point.
1: Well, I'm 76 years old, and when I went to uh, uh, get my PhD over uh, a half a century ago, every university for an economics degree taught the history of economic thought. That's now been uh, erased from almost all of the mainstream curriculum, and people get mathematics instead, so they're not exposed to the idea of economic rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, most of the theory was developed uh, in England. Uh, and also in France, but mainly in England. And uh, uh, the situation in England is a little more complex than America, except for, com- company, for companies like Rockefeller Center. In England, the the landlord, the military conquerors, imposed uh, a pure rent fee on the land. So, if you're an English uh, Englishman and you buy a house, you buy the house from the uh, uh, seller, but you also uh, have to pay. Somebody else owns the land. Uh, and uh, you have to pay a separate rent to the land, and this is to the heirs of the people who conquered. The The landlord doesn't do anything at all to collect land rent. That's why they call them uh, rentiers or coupon clippers. The word rent it's originally meant, a, a, it was a French word for a government bond. It meant uh, you got a, a regular income uh, every quarter or every year, uh, and a lot of bonds used to have coupons, and you'd uh, clip off the coupon and collect your interest, it's passively earned income. It's income that is not, uh, that the, that is not actually earned by uh, your own labor or enterprise, but it's just a claim uh, that society has to pay, whether you're a government bondholder or whether you've inherited land. Uh, and this was extended to the idea of monopolies. Uh, and uh, a monopolist could say, "Well, okay, we can produce or buy goods, uh, especially foreign traded goods like the East India Company and uh, uh, other companies, for let's say uh, a dollar uh, a unit, and we can sell them for whatever the market will bear. We can mark it up to a dollar fifty or two dollars. These are empty pricing. It's ve- it's uh, uh, just pure price gouging by uh, uh, by a natural monopoly, and the natural monopolies." Basically, in Europe, were kept in the public domain. The post office, the BBC, the broadcasting companies, uh, the roads and the transportation. Many of the national airlines used to be government airlines. So uh, the way that the European governments uh, prevented uh, monopoly rent of price gouging was simply to provide basic services uh, by the government at cost or even at a subsidized basis or freely in the case of roads. And the whole idea is that for public infrastructure, which you should think of as a fourth factor of production, Mm. along with land, labor, and capital, infrastructure was to be uh, lower the cost of living and lower the cost of uh, uh, doing business. Uh, But uh, once they're privatized, you all of a sudden have to uh, build in uh, uh, economic rent, and that takes the form of uh, rising the prices, executive salaries, interest, Stock options, uh, and the whole economy is turned into toll booths. So you can think of rent as somebody who's l- legally able to erect the toll booth and says, "You can't get uh, television over your cable channel unless you pay us." And what we charge you is anything we can get from you doesn't have any relation to what we have to pay. Uh, And uh, you have more and more uh, the United States, the World Bank, uh, and what's called the Washington Consensus, uh, forcing people, uh, forcing governments to uh, privatize uh, the public domain. And like uh, one, one example is in Mexico, when they told Mexico you have to be more efficient and privatize your telephone monopoly. So uh, they sold it to Carlos Slim, who became one of the one or two, you know, few richest people in the world by making uh, Mexico's telephones the highest priced telephones uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, essentially, you've created the government uh, has created uh, basically price gouging. Yeah. And this is the, kind, the classical economists viewed this as a kind of theft. And actually, it was the French novelists who got this and wrote about this much more than the uh, the economists. Uh, Balzac uh, said that every family fortune originates in a, a great theft mm. that not only was undiscovered, but has become taken for granted so naturally that it just doesn't matter. And most of the privatized uh, companies in the modern world, have, uh, if you look at the uh, Forbes uh, one hundred or five hundred list of the richest people uh, it 's all insider dealing. If you look at American history it 's all the real estate fortunes mm-hmm. made by uh, insiders who bribed uh, uh, the British uh, colonial governors and uh, then the uh, the u s it 's the railroad barons who uh, got the railroads and were able to uh, rip off uh, the con- uh, country. There are novels about this, Hollywood movies, the octopus. Uh, all described this. The American power elite all basically begun as robber barons, as they did in England, France, uh, and other countries.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, again, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent because we have a lot to cover uh, specific to your book. But, you know, I'm just wondering and, you know, maybe I'm throwing a little bit of a curveball here, but I heard uh, an interesting story in terms of when I was doing a little bit of my own research throughout the years about the evolution of economic thought and specifically the origins of the so-called Austrian school of economics, which was essentially, you know, people like von Mises and von Hayek in the early 20th century who were Essentially, uh, as far as I could tell, creating an ideological framework in which they could make theoretical arguments to justify exorbitant rent and to essentially make it into almost like a natural law, uh, uh, you know, something akin to, you know, uh, uh, a phenomenon of nature.
1: Well, the key to the Austrian school is they hated labor. They fought against labor. They were the proto-fascist party. Yes. Uh, 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 Terry Polanyi. Uh, has recently written about how uh, her father, Karl Polanyi, uh, 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 was confronted uh, with the, these right-wing uh, Austrians, and try uh, his whole doctrine uh, was designed to try to rescue uh, economics uh, from this school. Uh, the objective of uh, Austrian economics pretends uh, it has a, a fake history. Yes. Uh, it, wanted, it saw the danger of democratic government spreading to the Habsburg Empire, and it said, the one thing we have to stop this democracy. If we have to kill them, if we have to murder them, that's how we get a free market. And uh, so, you had uh, one of the first Austrians was Anton Menger, and uh, I think 1874, and he developed a whole theory about the origins of money that still governs Austrian economics. And he said there is no such thing as government. He was uh, just like Margaret Thatcher said: there is no mm-hmm. such thing as society. The Austrians developed a picture of the economy that there wasn't any government. Uh and uh, essentially that money was created by uh uh, mer- uh merchants uh and producers bartering everything. Uh and they get history completely uh, uh backward all of this. And uh basically the idea was that anything the government does to protect labor or to protect society from the rentiers, from the grabbers, is uh is a complete is uh, dead weight Overhead.
0: Well, and, not uh, and only that's that... how it's
1: treated today, as if the government is a burden instead of producing the infrastructure. And if we've just said in the previous discussion that all the great fortunes of our time have come from privatizing the public domain, obviously the government isn't just uh, dead weight. It's, it's become prey to the financial uh interests and prey to the uh, smashers and grabbers.
0: And and again, you're absolutely right. I, of course, agree 100%. But, um, and the point is, when you encounter this ideology, even in the sort of political, sociological realm through, like, a Joseph Schumpeter or through the, you know, quasi- economics realm through, like, von Hayek and the Road to Serfdom, his famous book, which is garbage but important to read nonetheless.
1: Well, um, it shows how to get to serfdom. His, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's remember, an inversion. You know, he, he, the real road to serfdom, you know what serfdom was. It was when uh, families had to pay all of their income yes. to the landlords for rent, and they were tied to the land. And he said the road to serfdom is escaping from this. <laughs> the road to serfdom is when the government frees uh, society from feudalism, and uh, he said capital, you know, democracy is serfdom. Uh, Instead of the antidote (laughs) assertion, so we're back in Orwellian doublethink.
0: It's the inversion, exactly as you were talking about earlier. That's right. we're going to go into a break here in a minute, but before we do, I, I want to touch on one other point that uh, is really important in the book. Again, the book, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy, available from Counterpunch. Very important that people pick up this book. Um, and,
1: and from Amazon. We and, have and, to add, they can get on, the hard copy yes. for those who don't want to read on uh, on uh, computers.
0: Yes, and on Amazon as well. Thank you. Um, and this... This issue that I want to touch on here before we go to the break is debt um, you know on this program a couple of months ago I had the uh, the, the famous journalist John Pilger and uh, he and I touched on a bunch of different topics but we, we touched on debt specifically as a weapon and how debt is used as a weapon and you know you can see this in the form of uh, debt enslavement if, if you want to call it that in post-colonial Africa you see the same thing in Latin America where Michael I know you have a lot of experience in in Latin America um, in the last couple of decades. So let's talk a little bit, if we could, before we go to the break, about debt as a weapon, because I think this is a really important concept for understanding everything that's happening now, say, in Greece, and really the framework through which we have to understand what we call 21st century austerity.
1: Well, if you treat debt as a weapon, the basic uh, context for this is finance is the new mode of warfare. Yes. And that's one of my chapters uh, in the book. Uh, that in the past, in order to uh, take over a country's land and its uh, uh, public uh, domain and its basic infrastructure and its mineral resources, you had to have a military invasion. Uh, but that's very expensive. Uh, and we're in a society now where almost no democratic country uh can afford a military invasion anymore. So uh the uh the objectives of the financial sector of Wall Street or the city of London uh or uh Frankfurt in Germany, uh is to obtain the land. You can look at, for example, what's happening in Greece. What they want are the Greek islands, they want the gra- gas rights rates in the Aegean, uh they want uh whatever uh, buildings and property there is, uh the museums, uh that uh, basically if you can get a company into debt, or a country into debt, or an individual into debt, then uh, uh, you get to strip away all of the assets uh, they have. Uh, In antiquity, uh, the way that uh, labor was originally obtained by private individuals was to uh, make a loan to uh, some family in need. And they would have to work off the loan in the form of labor. Uh, we've done a whole series of, uh, art, of books through my uh, Harvard archaeological group. Uh, I just also uh, edited, co-edited the book uh, uh, "Labor in the Ancient World" uh, over over this, uh, available also uh, on Amazon. And uh, you would get people into bondage. And uh, every ruler of the Bronze Age, uh, uh, when they came to office, the first thing they would do would free the bond-servants, and uh, return them to their families, and would annul the debts, and would return whatever lands were forfeited. So in uh, the Bronze Age, uh, debt serfdom and debt bondage was only temporary. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Biblical Jubilee Law was simply a literal translation of Babylonian practice that had gone back 2,000 years uh, before. Well, now this, uh, this practice of foreclosure was first extended to private companies. Uh, you'd, you'd lend, a, uh, in America, in colonial times, uh, uh, Sharpies uh, uh, from Britain or uh, later America would lend farmers enough money, uh, money. They knew they couldn't pay, and then they'd foreclose just before the crops came in and grabbed the land. Uh, right now you have corporate raiders uh, who are raiding whole companies. Uh, by forcing them into debt, uh, and then smashing and grabbing. But you now have the IMF and the Washington Consensus uh, and the European Central Bank taking over whole con- countries like Ukraine, l- purposely lending them the money that they know cannot be repaid, and say, oh, you can't be repaid? Well, we're not going to take a loss. We have a solution. Sell off, in the Greece's case, 50 billion, 50 billion euros of uh, your property, Everything that you have in the public sector. Your whole country, you now have to sell off to foreigners. And debt leverage is the way uh, that they can now achieve what it took armies to achieve in times past.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and one last point on that as well, that I want to get your comment on. And we see this in, you know, post colonial Africa, especially when the French and the British had to give up nominally give up control of their colonies there. Uh, you then saw debt become a very important tool for maintaining hegemony within their spheres of influence, what they saw as their spheres of influence. And um, of course, asset stripping and, and, and seizing control, smashing and grabbing is part of that, but also it is the debt servicing payments. It is the cycle of debt repayment and taking new loans on top of original loans to service the original loans. This process, this cycle is also really an example of this debt servitude or debt bondage.
1: That's correct, and it's interesting to note that economic, uh, mainstream economics denies any of this. Uh, it began with Ricardo, who was uh, uh, one of the major, his family were major bankers at the time, and he was the major bank lobbyist uh, in England. The Ricardo brothers, right after Greece won its uh, independence from Turkey, made uh, a, a, a rack-renting loan to Greece uh, at far below par that Greece had, had to, uh, tried to pay for the next, uh, century, the loan that it took out from the Ricardo brothers ended up uh, stripping it and bankrupting it uh, well into the 20th century. But Ricardo testified before Parliament that there could be no debt servicing problem. No, Any country, he said, can repay the debts automatically because there's an automatic stabilization uh, mm-hmm. mechanism that enables every country to be able to pay, and this is the theory that underlines Milton Friedman and the Chicago School monetarism—the idea that debt cannot be a problem—and that's what's taught uh, now in every university, in every international trade and international financial textbook, and it, it's. Uh, uh, absolutely false. It's false pleading, and it it draws uh, a what if picture of the world. And the authors of these textbooks, like Paul Samuelson, uh, say that it doesn't matter whether economic theory is realistic or not. The uh, judgment of whether an economic theory is scientific is simply whether it's internally consistent. Uh, and so you have this uh, fictitious economics, uh, all uh, given uh, Nobel prizes for for people like Samuelson onwards uh, that just give uh, an inside-out, upside-down version of how the real global economy actually works.
0: Yeah, and, and just one, one other point here, I know that's like the third time I've said that, but uh, one other thing that they no longer teach, because of I, I guess the influence of the Chicago school, uh, neoliberalism, monetarism, what, what have you, they no longer teach what used to be called political economy. It seems to be have uh, have been completely removed from the the academia, from the canon, if you will, and instead, as you said, it's all about mathematics and formulas and, and, and treating economics like some sort of a science when, in fact, it's really more of a social science.
1: These, these uh, formulas that they teach don't have government in it, mm-hmm. uh, and they're based on re- uh, mathematics of regression equations that assume th- the environment remains constant. And if you have a theory that everything is just uh, an exchange, a trade-off, and there isn't any government, then somehow you use this theory that has nothing to do with the real world instead of uh, governments, uh, and you're using economics for the opposite uh, ideal of what the classical economists did. Uh, Adam Smith, Mill, Marx, uh, uh, Veblen, they all uh, developed their uh, economic theory to to reform the world. The, The classical economists were reformers. They wanted to free society, from the legacy of feudalism, to get rid of land rent, to take uh, money creation and credit creation into the public domain, and essentially to uh, uh, whatever their views, whether they were right-wingers or left-wingers, whether they were Christian socialists or Ricardian socialists or Marxian socialists, all of the capitalist theorists of the 19th century called themselves socialists. Because they all saw capitalism as evolving into socialism, and now all of the what you have since uh, basically World War One is a reaction against this, a stripping away uh, of uh, the whole idea that there, the governments have a produ- uh, productive role. And if government is not, uh, and uh, if government is not the director and planner of the economy, then who is? It's the financial sector. It's Wall Street. So the essence of neoliberalism that you were uh, mentioning before is it's a doctrine of central planning, that the central planning should be done by Wall Street. The central planning should be done by finance. And, of course, the, what is the objective of central planning by Wall Street? Uh, it's not to raise living standards. It's not to increase employment. It's the smash-and-grab, and And that's the society we're in now. And so a number of chapters of my book, I think five, describe how uh, the Obama administration has implemented uh, the smash-and-grab, doing the exact opposite of everything uh, that he promised other people, and how Obama has sort of implemented the Rubinomics doctrine of Wall Street uh, to force America into what looks like uh, a chronic depression.
0: Exactly right. I couldn't agree more. Okay, let's take a short break and uh, we'll continue the discussion. Again, um, I'm chatting with Michael Hudson. We're talking about his new book, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
1: your steamer.
0: Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Michael Hudson. Um again, you know, I I mean, you already heard so much information uh in the first part of our discussion here, but I just want to reiterate the book very important available from Amazon as well as from Counterpunch Killing the Host: How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy. And again, I want to just remind you, this is part of the reason why we're putting out the podcast. We want to be able to bring as much of this sort of analysis and information As possible, so do uh, support uh, M- M- Michael Hudson's book. Of course, supporting Counterpunch, all of that. It's it's really all part of this same project. So, uh, Michael, I wanna I wanna go back to some of the important issues that we sort of introduced or alluded to in the first part of our discussion here. Uh, you know, uh, I was mentioning to you off air a couple of years ago. I I twice interviewed your colleague Jeffrey Summers, with whom you've uh, worked and co-published. Uh, I think a number of Works. And we talked a lot about many of the same issues that you and I are touching on, and specifically, uh, Summers, and I know you as well, did a lot of work in Latvia, uh, a country in the former Soviet space in Eastern Europe on the Baltic Sea. And um, you write about this in the book, there's a, there's a whole chapter, I believe, and actually reference to it throughout the book. Um, and talking a little bit about how Latvia in many ways serves as a template for understanding the austerity model, and specifically, you know, it's interesting because Latvia is touted by these technocrats of the financial elite as some sort of a major success story, how austerity can work. And I find that absurd on so many different levels. So let's talk a little bit about Latvia. Tell us what happened there, what the real costs were, and why they champion it as a success.
1: This is Latvia is the distra- uh, disaster story uh, of the last two decades. And uh, it's interesting... Uh, uh it was actually jeff who brought me over uh to latvia and i became the uh director of research and uh economics professor at the riga graduate school of law uh and uh we latvia uh, once it got its uh, independence, uh, there were a number of Latvians who'd studied at the ultra right wing uh, George Washington University. I think I've got it right. Uh, and they brought neoliberalism over there. Uh, and their idea was essentially I don't know if you remember the presidential campaign of Steve Forbes in 2008. But the flat what tax. he wanted was a, a flat tax. Yep of uh... something like twelve percent uh... and uh, uh... no tax at all you know for real estate well latvia is a country where they actually did it they uh actually ta- uh... imposed a flat tax there was almost no tax uh... on uh, real estate at all uh... i think uh... jeff and i had visited uh... the head of the tax authority uh... and she was appointed because she had done her uh, phd dissertation on the last. uh... Uh, land value uh, assessment they had in Latvia, which was one thousand nine hundred and seventeen uh, they hadn 't increased the prices since then, so Latvia uh, emerged from the Soviet Union without any debt and with uh, a lot of real estate and with a very highly educated population. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, they turned in uh, all they turned over most of the uh, private under- the government enterprises uh, to political insiders. Uh, Latvia had been the money laundering uh, center of uh, uh, the Soviet Union and remains the money laundering center of Russia. And uh, you had all of a sudden the real estate uh, takeoff. Uh, uh, Latvia did, uh, once it got its independence, it, uh, it had a problem. The Soviet Union didn't have private banks. Because the government simply created the money to fund the economy as it needed. So the only banks lending to Latvia were mainly the Swedish and the Scandinavian banks. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, here you have real estate. There's almost no tax on it. Uh, you had the biggest real estate bubble in the world uh, in Latvia, along with maybe Russia uh, also. And uh, the real estate uh, really took off. Uh, and the Latvians all of a sudden found that in order to uh, buy. Uh, to gain housing uh, of their own, they had to go very deeply uh, into debt. So a few years ago, there was a reform movement uh, of, uh, the, uh, in Latvia, and uh, Jeff and I brought over uh, American uh, property appraisers and uh, economists, uh, and uh, we visited uh, uh, the leading uh, bank regulatory agencies, and we said, look, uh, Latvia is going broke because it has to pay so much for us real estate and all of this money that is paid uh, to the uh... swedish and foreign banks uh... to buy real estate is all sent abroad and the currency is going to fall apart uh... and the bank regulatory agencies told us well we're not uh... our, our clients are the banks uh... it's not the population we're working for the banks and so uh... you're absolutely right uh... Professor Edson, uh, uh the, the banks are lending much more money than the property is actually worth. We know that. And so we have a solution. Uh, and the solution is to have not only the buyer be uh, uh, obligated to pay the mortgage, but also uh, uh, the sons or the parents or the uncles and the aunts and get the whole family involved <laughs> so that if they can't pay, the whole family uh, is obligated. And that's how we've stabilized the banks. Well, the result is that Latvia has lost 20% of its population, just like Greece has lost 20% of its population, just as uh, uh, Ireland uh, lost in a similar condition. And so the Latvians have a joke, well, the last person who leaves in 2020, please turn off the lights at the airport. <laughs> uh and the population is shrinking and the whole economy is basically being run uh by uh, uh foreign looters and a few years ago i, I was at uh, the only uh, uh meeting of the inet uh george soros's group uh, that, that i was ever invited to and uh, i was amazed in the morning the lead uh talk was uh, how Latvia was a model that all countries could follow it, and you'll, have, you'll be able to balance the budget. Uh, and Latvia's balanced the budget by uh, forcing its population to emigrate and uh, saying, well, you can balance just by uh, selling off, uh, you know, whatever is remaining in the public domain. And uh, we saw, like, there was an island in the middle of the uh, river that goes to the middle of Latvia that was sold for uh, half a million dollars that uh, we had our appraiser say, well, it's worth half a billion dollars. Uh, potentially. Uh, So you have all these giveaways at insider prices. Uh, It's a kleptocracy, and the kleptocracy is held as the ideal of neoliberal economics I go into all the details in the chapter there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to talk about it without losing my temper. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to be reasonable. But uh, it's a country that was absolutely uh, destroyed and smashed. And the question is, how is it that a population can continue to vote in these neoliberals? And the answer is that um, the, uh, the neoliberals say, if it, it's not our kind of free market, the alternative is Stalinism. And there will be uh, the Russians uh, uh, speaking parties are the main people who are uh, taking a social democratic uh, party. And the Latvians say, you know, there's a problem. A lot of the Russians have come here, Jewish. And uh, if you don't want to uh, be Jewish, you'd better back us, the nationalistic Latvians. So it's amazing that you have someone who is Jewish, like George Soros, backing the anti-Semitic movements and the neo-Nazi movements in Latvia, Estonia, uh, Ukraine. Uh, it, it's it, it, it's it's uh, a kind of irony that you could not have uh, thought out deductively if you were trying to plot things and if you were making a novel. No one would have believed uh, that there would have been th- uh, that politics has somehow all turned into identity politics. Yes. Uh, of uh, are you Latvian or are you Russian Jewish? Uh, and if you're Lat uh, and the whole votes are along ethnic lines instead of. Do you really want to be forced to emigrate out of your country in order to get work, or do you want to make Latvia, you know, what it could have been, uh, an uh, enormously successful economy, free of debt? Everybody could have got their houses free instead of giving the houses to the kleptocrats uh, and the takeovers uh, and the the big buildings there. I mean, it could have been an ideal, and uh, they turned it into an exercise in smash-and-grab and called it an ideal.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's an excellent point. And also, you know, I mean, although it's a more extreme case for a number of reasons in Ukraine, it is the same. uh, It is the same trend. It is the same tendency. It's not only is it identity politics, you know, they talk about, you know, it's like, quote unquote, Putin and his and his gaggle of Jews, you know what I mean? That's the idea is that Putin and the Jews will come in, and they'll steal everything from you. And they'll, they'll turn this into, you know, some sort of a Soviet revanchist policy. And in fact, this is sort of the, intersection between the economic angle here and the politics, because Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Baltic states of the former Soviet Union are really the front lines to a large extent of NATO expansion. They were some of the first most uh, pivotal countries that were brought into the NATO orbit, and it is the threat of of quote-unquote Russian aggression via the enclave at Kaliningrad or via just Russia in general. It is that threat that they use to justify the NATO umbrella and simultaneously to justify continuing these economic policies. So in many ways, Russia serves as this convenient villain, both on a political, military, and on an economic level.
1: It's amazing how the popular press doesn't uh, uh, report what's really going on. Uh, uh, I think uh, before uh, Primakov uh, uh, died uh, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the at the time there was a last crisis a few years ago. He said, "Look, Russia has no need to invade Latvia." We own the oil export terminals. We own Latvia. Uh, We've played the Western game. Uh, Your game is taking over financially, and you have ownership. Fine. We don't need to invade to control any more than uh, America needs to invade to control Saudi Arabia or the Near East. You know, uh, we own the exports. What possible motive would we have uh, uh, to invade? Uh, We're using it as the money laundering center. Uh, We're losing, using, and uh, uh, the same thing, of course, uh, uh, applies to the Ukraine today. The idea that Russia is expansionary in a world where no one could be expansionary, I mean, after Russia's disaster in Afghanistan, no country in the world that's subject to democratic election, whether it's America after the Vietnam War or Russia or Europe, no country... Can ever, a democratic country can ever invade another country again? All they can do is bomb it. But they have, uh, other countries have no need to bomb it. Uh, uh, certainly, in the trips that I, I've taken to uh, Russia, China, uh, other countries, they're in a purely defensive mode. Uh, and uh, they're wondering, you know, why, why is America uh, forcing uh, all of this? Uh, why is it destroying the Near East, creating uh, a refugee problem that, uh, that then tells Europe uh, to clean up its mess? And then the question is, well, why is Europe uh, cleaning up all of America's mess? Why is Europe part of NATO, fighting in the Near East, fighting in the Far East? Why is uh, is Europe uh, when America tells Europe, "Let's you and Russia fight"? Uh, uh that that puts europe as the first line uh of fire, and why would it even have an interest instead of trying to build an economic relationship uh, with Russia, as seemed to be uh, developing in the 19th century?
0: Well, and that's and that's in fact the ultimate strategy that the U.S. has used is driving that wedge between Russia and Europe. That's the argument that Putin and the Russians have made for a long time, and you can see tangible examples of that sort of a relationship even right now. If you look at the Nord Stream pipeline connecting Russian energy to german industrial output that is a tangible example of the relationship economic relationship that is really only just beginning between russia and europe and that's really what i think the united states wanted to put the brakes on in order to be able to maintain its hegemony and the the number one way in which it does that is through the mechanism of nato
1: well it's not only put the brakes on it's created a new iron curtain right exactly. uh, in the uh, two years ago uh greece was supposed to uh uh, privatized five billion uh, uh, euros of uh, its public domain, and half of this, two and a half billion, was to be the sale of its gas pipeline. Mm-hmm. And uh, the largest bidder was Gazprom, and America said, "No, you can't go to the highest bidder uh, because if it's Russian, you can only go to the United States." Same thing in Ukraine. Uh, here, Ukraine uh, it, it has just been smashed economically, and the U.S. says, "No, Ukrainian." Uh, or Russian, can buy uh, into uh, Ukrainian uh, industry uh, assets that are being sold off. Only uh, George Soros and his fellow Americans uh, uh, can buy into this. And uh, so this, this uh, shows that this patter talk of neoliberalism, of free markets, of uh, let's everybody pay the highest price, is only patter talk, that once uh, the winner in the free market is not the United States, uh, it sends in ISIS. Uh, and yes. the assassination teams uh, and uh, backs the neo Nazis, as in uh, uh, Ukraine, to uh, uh, prevent it. So we're in a new Cold War, and the first victims of this Cold War, apart from Southern Europe, are going to be uh, 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 the rest of Europe. And uh, you can imagine how this is just beginning uh, to tear European uh, politics apart with uh, the German Link Party uh, and other parties uh, making a resurgence.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And we could go on and on about the uh, European politics and the politics of this. But I do want to return us back to the book and some other key issues that you bring up um, that I think are really important. One that we hear in the news all the time, and you write extensively about it in the book is this thing called the Troika. Uh, And that's, of course, the IMF, the European Central Bank and the European Commission. And, you know, it could be characterized, I think, and this is just how I'm characterizing it, you can tell me if you disagree, but it's essentially the sort of a, the political arm of finance capital in Europe, and uh, one which more or less serves to manage austerity in the interests of the ruling class, uh, the ruling class of finance capital, I guess we could call them, Um, you know, these are technocrats, these are not, you know, uh, uh, academically trained economists, primarily, maybe with a few exceptions, but I want you to talk a little bit about how the troika functions, and why it's That mechanism, this mechanism of the Troika, why it's so important in what we could call this crisis stage of neoliberal finance capitalism.
1: Basically, the Troika, uh, the the European Central Bank is the head of it, uh, run essentially by the Frankfurt bankers. They're collection agents. Uh, if you read recently what uh, Greek Finance Minister Yanis uh, Varoufakis has written and uh, his advisor Jamie Galbraith, uh, they said that, uh, when they taught, uh, when they came to, uh, were elected to office in January, uh, they tried to reason with uh, the IMF, and uh, the IMF said, uh, we can only do whatever the uh, European Central Bank say, uh, and we're going to approve whatever they do. Uh, and the European Central Bank said, well, we're not here to negotiate democracy. We're, coll- we're-, we're not economists. We're lawyers. All we can say is, here's what you have to pay. Here's how to do it. Uh, uh, we're not here to talk about uh, whether this is going to bankrupt Greece. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in Greece. We're interested in how are you going to pay the banks uh, uh, what they're owed by selling off uh, your industry to uh, uh, to German companies. Uh, your electric companies have to go to German companies. Uh, and it's sort of like uh, Germany and England and France divided the Near East after. Uh, World War I. There's a kind of uh, uh, gentleman's agreement as to what countries are going to uh, divide up Greece and uh, carving it up and treating it very much like uh, neighboring Yugoslavia to the north. Uh, And so uh, the IMF, I don't don't know if we have enough time for me to describe the IMF, but in uh, 2001, uh, the IMF made a big loan to Argentina. And I have a whole chapter in Argentina, too. And the loan went bad after a year. So the IMF passed a rule called the, the No More Argentinas Rule. In other words, the, the staff economist said we're not going to participate in a loan where the government obviously cannot pay. Well, then came the Greek uh, crisis of 2011. And uh, the staff said Greece cannot possibly pay this loan. It has, there has to be a debt Write down of the principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and the staff said that, the, uh, the board said that, but Strauss Kahn uh, wanted to run for the presidency of France. And he, uh, and most of the Greek bonds were held by French banks. And Sarkozy uh, uh, said, well, you can't uh, run for politics, political office in France, you know, if you uh, stiff the French banks. And uh, uh, Merkel said, well, wait a minute, you have to pay the German banks. But then Geithner and President Obama came over with a killer, and they said the American banks have, have made such big uh, default insurance contracts and gambles uh casino gambles that greece can pay that if greece doesn't pay if you don't bail out greece then the american banks will go under and we will make sure that europe is smashed and torn to pieces
0: and M- uh, michael and- i just want to clarify uh, i guess it's sort of a question what you're talking about here in terms of geithner and obama coming in the
1: these would be
0: the, right these would be the credit default swaps and the collateralized debt obligations yes yeah.
1: Yes, and he said that Wall Street have made so many gambles that if the French and German banks are not paid, they'll ask Wall Street to pay, and Wall Street banks will go under, and that'll wreck Europe. Exactly. Uh, And so uh, 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 Strauss and then the European Central Bank said, look, uh, we don't really want the IMF to be a part of the Troika unless it agrees to take a subordinate role to us and agrees that we have to collect anything, whether the country can pay or not, we'll just smash and grab. And so it did, and so the, the heads of the IMF European staff resigned. Uh, a lot of them went to Canada, and have published, uh, uh, they went public, and uh, uh, essentially were whistleblowers and have written a whole series of memoranda on uh, uh, what happened there. Uh, well, uh, now uh, you have, the same thing happened earlier this year in Greece, when uh, Lagarde said, uh, we want debt reduction only by, we'll give them a little longer to pay. (laughs) Not a penny, not a euro will be written down. Every penny they will pay, but we'll stretch it out. We'll make it easy, and uh, we'll make them pay by grabbing all of their industry. So the staff, again, leaked a report to the Financial Times and i think the wall street journal of saying look greek can't pay there's no way we can pay this is against the imf rules and lagarde overruled them and uh... uh... was very embarrassed uh... because this meant the imf couldn't uh, make a loan and she said no they uh... uh... germany has to agree to stretch out the payments." well then a few weeks ago uh, you have the ukraine crisis and like uh... the imf is not allowed number one to make loans to countries that cannot pay. But now the whole purpose is to make loans to countries that can't pay. So you can say you can't pay, give us everything in your public domain, and uh, uh, the rest of your population has to emigrate.
0: And technically uh, they're not supposed to be making any loans to countries at war, and they're ignoring that that rule as that's well. The,
1: that's the third thing. Right. Uh, at least in 2010 uh, and 12, uh, Strauss-Kahn, got around this by having a new uh, IMF rule, and that was called, if a country is systemically important, then we can lend it the money, and even though the country can't pay, even though it's not creditworthy, if uh, it would cause a problem in the system, meaning a loss by Wall Street Mm -hmm. or a loss by the bankers, uh, then we make the loan. So then uh, uh, it will do it, but Ukraine is not systemically important. It's just it's part of the Russians, uh, the uh, post-Soviet system. It's geopolitically important. It's trade and important. its payments. It's, yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's most of its trade is with Russia. Yeah. most of its population is uh, russia speaking uh, so it's part of the Russian system, not the Western system. So now, uh, as you just pointed out, the uh, guard made the last IMF loan and said, we're making it the loan. We hope it's stability, and uh, they're not going to go to war. The next day, President Peroshenko said, thank God we have the loan. Now we can go to war against <laughs> Russia, <laughs> uh, against the East. And uh, he mounted a new... Uh, attack against uh, the Donbass, the, uh, the Russian-speaking region, and, uh, and $1.5 uh, of the IMF loan was g- uh, given to banks uh, run by Kolomoisky, uh one of the uh kleptocrats there who has his own army with the idea that Kolomoysky would use uh, the money uh most of it he immediately stole uh, abroad to his own foreign banks but used his, his domestic Ukrainian money to uh, have his own army essentially uh, uh flying the old Nazi SS insignia yep. uh fighting against uh, the Russian speakers and saying you know we're going to conquer the land for for my finance cap, and I'm gonna get rich. I so, wanna interject
0: uh, I wanna interject two points here for listeners who haven't followed it as closely. Number one, uh the the private army that you're talking about, such as right sector, which is essentially uh mercenary force of Nazis in the employ of Kolomoysky, but they're also part of what is now called the Ukrainian National Guard. So this is this quasi military, quasi paramilitary uh organization that is being paid directly by Kolomoysky. Number two and this relates back to something, Michael, you were saying earlier, that loan went to pay for the for a lot of the military equipment that Kiev has now used to obliterate the economic and industrial infrastructure of Donbass, which was the industrial heartland of Ukraine. So in effect, it's almost from the Western perspective, it's two birds with one stone. If they can't strip the assets and capitalize on them, then they can destroy them because the number one customer was Russia.
1: They didn't want the assets that were exporting uh, to Russia. And Russia had most, uh, much of its military uh, hardware made in Ukraine. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, uh, the liftoffs were satellites. Uh, uh, the, uh, the satellites uh, were made in Ukraine. Uh, the West didn't want that. It wanted Ukraine's land. Yeah. It wants the gas rights in the Black Sea. Uh, it wants uh, the electric companies and the public utilities, because these are the major toll booths to extract economic rent from the economy. So uh, basically... Basically, it wanted to make sure, uh, by destroying uh, Ukraine's uh, eastern export industry, it made sure that Ukraine would be chronically bankrupt and have to settle its uh, balance of payments deficit by selling off the private domain to american and german and uh, other foreign buyers
0: yeah and that's the that's the monsantos that's hunter biden on the barisma board the gas company all of these things i mean these are is like you said earlier it's like you, you 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 wouldn't even believe it if someone would have made it up but it's so transparent what they're doing in ukraine um I want to switch gears a little bit in the very short time we have remaining because I have two more things that I want to talk about. And, uh, first of that, first of all, um, one aspect of this that's rarely mentioned, and I want to get your take on it, is the way in which many uh, regular people, and, and I'm referring back to this parasitical, uh, uh, relationship, on the par- the parasitical relationship on the real economy, is um, the way in which regular working people get swindled into essentially, in many ways, being part of this parasitical exploitation. And one example that comes to my mind is mutual funds that manage the money for these massive pension funds, where lots of retirees are invested in their, their savings is, is all tied up in these massive mutual funds, which are heavily leveraged in junk bonds and in other things in places like Greece, but also recently in Puerto Rico, which is going through a very similar scenario right now. And so in many ways, U.S. taxpayers and U.S. pensioners are essentially funding the looting and exploitation and destruction of these countries. And they're then uh, financially invested in continuing the destruction of these countries and making sure that they are made whole. So it's almost like these pensioners are sort of like human shields for Wall Street.
1: Well, this actually is the main theme of my book, uh, which is financialization. Uh, mutual funds are not pension funds. Uh, they're, they're different. But uh, a half-century ago, uh, people uh, the, a new term was coined into the English language, and that was pension fund capitalism, mm-hmm. sometimes called pension fund socialism. Uh, so uh, we're back in Orwellian Doublethink uh, because when uh, Pinochet came to power under the Chicago School, they immediately organized what they called uh... labor capitalism uh... and in labor capitalism uh... uh... labor is the victim not the beneficiary uh... the first thing they did was uh... uh, compulsory uh... setting aside of wages in the form of pension funds that would be controlled by the employers uh and the employers could do everything they wanted with it and ultimately almost every uh the employers made pension funds and uh for their companies but they also had the banks and what they did was simply drive the banks under and wipe out the pension funds and seize it all this happened in America a few years ago uh, with the Chicago Tribune
0: uh
1: when Sam Zell uh borrowed money uh took over uh bought the uh the Chicago Tribune used the employee stock ownership plan the ESOP uh essentially to uh, pay off uh the uh the the bond uh, holders and uh then drove uh looted uh <laughs> the Tribune drove it into bankruptcy and wiped out the stockholders and uh they brought a fraudulent uh, conveyance suit against all of this uh so basically uh about half of the ESOPs in the country, uh, some years ago it was calculated, half of the employee stock ownership programs are wiped out. And because they're uh, turned out, invested by the employers, the employers invest them in their own stock. And so they give them the managers give themselves stock options. And the stock options, uh, basically, who's buying, who's supporting the stock? The pension funds are buying the own stock. Yep. So the, labor set, the labor's wages are docked. By the pension contribution that 's used to bid up the stocks and pay the managers, well, this is what uh, pension fund capitalism is on a great on a, a huge uh, basis. Uh, you have the management of a modern American industry basically being run for financial purposes, not for industrial purposes, so the industrial uh, Firms of America have all been financialized. Uh, General Motors makes most of its money from General Motors Acceptance Corporation financially. Uh, all, when I was going to school 50 years ago, Macy's made most of its money not by selling its selling uh, product, but by getting uh, people to use its credit cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it only had a store in order to get people to use its credit cards. Well, uh, you have in pen, uh, you have today uh, uh, companies 92 uh, percent of uh... uh... the fortune uh... Uh, 100 in the last year uh, of the earnings of them have been used either on stock buybacks to buy back their stock uh, or in a dividend payouts. so the purpose of running a company is to increase the price of the stock which increases uh, the manager's profits and who do they sell the stock to essentially pension funds yep. there's a tsunami of money coming in and uh, you, I don't know if you remember uh, just before the last year of, uh, uh, of George Bush's office he wanted to privatize social security of course the idea was to spend all of the social security the 15 percent that's withheld from uh workers paychecks fica every uh month imagine if all of this money were sent into the stock market and privatized you would have a stock market boom of which uh, the uh official management companies the big banks would be uh, getting a free uh, commission, a free rich off. It would make them. It would uh, make billionaires into hundred billionaires, uh, and all of this would increase until the American population began to age, or more likely, become unemployed. In which case, they'd begin to sell the stocks to pay them, and you'd have a huge market crash, wiping wiping out uh, the workers. So the whole idea is that when Wall Street plays finance, the casino wins. Uh, when the employees play finance, and the pension funds, the casino loses. Because, uh, they lose in the right,
0: and 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 just as an example for listeners, and, and just to make this uh, what what Michael was just talking about even more real, if we think back to two thousand nine and the you know the 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 sort of the collapse of General Motors, it was not General Motors automotive manufacturing that was collapsing; it was GMAC, it was their finance arm because it was leveraged on these credit default swaps and the collateralized debt obligations and all. All of the rest of these financial derivatives I guess what they call exotic instruments that they were that they were involved in that is what caused the collapse of General Motors and so when the Obama comes in and claims that he quote unquote saved General Motors it wasn't really that it was that he came in for the Wall Street arm of General Motors
1: That's exactly correct and he was really the Wall Street candidate promoted by uh, Robert Rubin who yep. was uh, Clinton's uh... Treasury Secretary and uh basically American economic policy's been run by a combination of Goldman Sachs and Citibank. And they often uh, go back interchangeably. And this,
0: was, and this was demonstrated very clearly in the first days of Obama being in office when uh, who does he meet with to to, to talk about the uh, fin- financial crisis? He invites the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and, and and Bank of America and Citi and all of the rest of them. They're the ones who come to the White House and there's, um, you know, it's been written about in books and, you know, in the New Yorker and elsewhere about this meeting and Obama Obama basically says, "Don't worry, guys, I got this."
1: Well, uh, Suskind wrote uh, this. Right, exactly. said Suskind. Obama Thank said, you. Yes. "I'm the only guy staying, standing between you and the pitchfork." That's right. Uh, yeah. And listen to me; I can, I can basically just fool them. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, this. Uh, 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 this, uh, signs of this meeting were all erased from the White House uh, website, but Suskind has it all in his uh, uh, book about Obama. Yeah. So, uh, Obama's one of the great demagogues of the century, and he may really be the worst president, we, even worse than Andrew Jackson.
0: Yeah, and, and and so much of it is based on, I mean, obviously policies and his actions, but the moment that he came to power was such a critical moment when when, yeah. uh, you know, action was needed, and he did not only did he not take the right action, he Did exactly what Wall Street wanted, and in many ways we can look back to 2008, you know, when he was championing the TARP, the bailout, all of the rest of that, none of that would have been possible without Obama, and that's something that Democrats like to avoid in their conversations.
1: That's exactly the point, uh, uh, and it was Orwellian rhetoric again. Uh, he said, I'm the candidate of hope and change, yes. and his uh, real role was to smash hope and uh, smash change, and essentially uh, uh, wreck the American economy in the same way that he'd wrecked uh, Chicago and yes. uh, uh, torn up the black neighborhoods when he was uh, a community organizer working for the big real estate interests, uh, tearing down the neighborhoods where the uh, lower-income blacks uh, Lived to gentrify them and jack up the prices to the high uh, to make the blacks pay more than the whites. Uh, he made billions for the Pritzker family, and then yeah. Penny Pritzker said, "You've made so much money for us, and let me introduce you to Robert Rubin." And uh, he met with Rubin, and he promised to uh, appoint Rubin. Let Rubin appoint his his cabinet, and so they appointed you know the anti labor uh, uh, vicious uh, uh, Rom, uh, now uh, mayor of Chicago, is his uh, manager uh, to essentially drive any uh, any democrat to the left of herbert hoover uh, out of the party and essentially has uh, made the uh, democrats to the right of the republicans so yeah. now you have people like uh... donald trump saying you know he's for uh... uh what kucinich uh... was for he's for uh, a single-payer health care program uh, Obama fought against the, against this and uh, backed uh, the lobbyists of the uh, pharmaceuticals industry and the uh, uh, health insurance industry. And uh, Obama's genius is being able to make people believe uh, that he's on their side uh, when he's actually doing uh, defending his uh, Wall Street special interest
0: oh that's true and you can see that in literally every different uh, arena in which Obama has taken any action from championing so-called Obamacare which is really just a boon for the insurance industry to uh, the charter schools which is the privatization of public education which is a major uh, boon for Wall Street for Pearson for all of these major uh, education corporations in terms of real estate and the gentrification all the rest of that. literally every uh, uh, perspective, every angle from which you look at Obama, he is a servant of finance capital, of investors, not of people.
1: So here's the problem. How do we get the left to realize this? How do we get the left to talk about economics? uh instead of uh ethnic identity problems and sexual identity instead of culture how do we get the left to do what they were talking about a century ago uh economic reform uh and uh, how to help themselves well, me... how do we tell the uh the black that it's more important to get a good well paying job uh that 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 that's uh the way that they gain uh, power how do we say it doesn't matter uh, I think Mao said, uh, uh, "Black cat, white cat, it doesn't matter as long as it catches mice." How do we say, "Black president, white president, it doesn't matter as long as you know they give uh, jobs for us and help our help our community." Uh, economically,
0: Yeah, well, I think that that's, I think that's important. And I want to close with this issue, uh, uh, solutions, because one of the things that I really appreciated uh, in reading the book, again, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy, available from Counterpunch and on Amazon, uh, is that the book is broken up into these sections. And that final section, I think, is really important. Um, you know, you, you titled it something interesting. You titled it, there is an alternative, which is of course a, a callback, a reference to the immediate post Soviet uh, period, uh, the TINA, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative, that uh, ideology, that mindset that took over the left. So you're saying essentially there is an alternative and in that section uh, you propose I think a number of really important reforms um, and you kind of argue that they would restore industrial prosperity as you called it. Now I'm not necessarily asking you to name all of them to run down the list or anything, but maybe touch on a little bit of what you included in that section and why that's important for beginning to build this alternative.
1: Well, there there are two aims the classical economists had 200 years ago. Uh, and one was that uh, you wanted to free society from debt. You didn't want people to have to spend their lives working off the debt uh, whether for a home or for uh, living or for education uh... and essentially you wanted to fund industry not by debt but by uh, equity this is what the Sansimonians simonians in france did uh... it's what the german banking before world war one uh... became famous foreign uh... up until world war one there was a whole debate in the english-speaking countries uh... uh especially in england saying uh... uh well, wait a minute we think that maybe uh... england and the allies may lose uh, World War I because uh, uh, the banks are running everything and uh, uh, that finance really should be uh, subordinated to fund industry and to fund, uh, uh, you know, real consumer growth. It, it can be used to help the economy grow, not be parasitic. So, uh, but instead, all of our laws uh, favor financing. For instance, uh, debt service is tax deductible. Uh, so that means that if, you, uh, if a company pays out, say, $2 billion a year in uh, dividends, a uh, corporate raider can buy it on credit, and uh, if there's a 50% stock rate, he can pay $4 billion to bondholders Instead of two billion to stockholders, so you 've had for the last twenty years the american stock uh, stock market has turned into a vehicle for corporate rating for replacing equity with debt, and that makes America very high cost. So that's one of the changes. The other, uh, the other uh, point that I'm making is the economic rent point, that the whole idea should be to lower the cost of living and uh, doing business. And I go over what the average American wage earner you know, has to pay. Uh, under the most recent uh, Federal Housing Authority laws, the government guarantees uh, mortgage payments uh, to families up to 43% of their income. Now imagine if you're paying 43% of your income for mortgage, you add that to 15% of your wages that are set aside for Social Security, instead of funding Social Security out of the general budget, out of progressive taxation, uh, you say, no, the rich shouldn't pay for Social Security. Only the low-income workers should pay for Social Security. And so if you make over 115000 uh, you don't have to pay anything. We only want to really screw the wage earners. Uh so uh 15% goes for that about 10% goes for other uh bank loans and about 20% uh for uh taxes both uh when uh, sales taxes and income taxes and the various taxes you pay. So only about uh 25% of what American families earn actually goes for goods and services. So if you would give them all of their food, all of their transportation, all of their clothing uh for nothing, they still uh... could not compete with foreign countries because uh... so much of the budget uh... has to go for financial reasons and uh... that's why uh... our employment is not going to recover that's why our living standards are not going to recover, and that's why even if wages go up uh, for some workers, they're going to have to pay it all to the bank for education loans, for mortgage loans, uh, for bank debt, for credit card debt. Uh, and uh, the result is you're spending your whole life, uh, if you try to uh, join the middle class by buying a home and getting an education, you have to spend the rest of your life paying the banks. You don't get it. The banks
0: do Oh, you don't have to tell me. I'm living that reality. <laughs> interestingly in in that final section of the book you talk about things like a public banking option and the importance of a public banking option that uh, many people have discussed you talk about uh, you know the the social security um, cap that you were talking about certain forms of taxation now there are some who would suggest that um, these sorts of reforms are not going to be able to salvage the you know uh, uh, capitalist model that is so ensconced in the US so I just want to give you a chance to sort of uh, uh, present that argument or maybe rebut that by
1: explaining... No, I won't rebut it. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, 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 Marx thought that it was the task of industrial capitalism to free economies from feudalism. Uh, and he thought, well, that, you know, the bourgeois parties are the parties that uh, want to get rid of the excrescences of uh the marketplace they want to get rid of the parasites they want to get rid of the landowners and the creditors and yet that doesn't hasn't happened so even if you get rid of uh the parasites even if you uh uh socialize finance and land you're still going to have Uh, Even if you deal with the problems taught in uh, Volume 2 and 3 of Capital, you're still going to have the Volume 1 problem. You're still going to have the problem between uh, employers and employees. You're going to have all of the labor capital problems. Uh, And uh, my point is that uh, most of the Marxists, uh, academic Marxists, uh, and the uh, the left have uh, focused so much on the fight of workers against employers and labor unions uh, that they don 't realize that they've been there 's this huge tsunami swamping the whole economy uh, by finance and uh, the uh, the fire sector finance insurance, and real estate that is uh, wrecking industry and government along with labor and uh, until you complete the freeing of society from feudalism, you can't even begin to deal with the industrial problems that uh, Marx dealt with in Volume 1. But yeah. of course, they, these problems will still exist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we're out of time, but again, I want to I want to thank you for coming on the program. Listeners, I mean, you heard it. There's so much information to digest here. The book is really brilliant, really, I think, essential reading, required reading, if I could say it, Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global Economy economy available through counterpunch as well as on amazon michael hudson professor of economics at university of missouri kansas city his work is all over the place uh find it uh regularly on counterpunch as well you can go find his stuff on his website michael-hudson.com
1: michael hyphen as we say in the grammatical <laughs>
0: yes michael michael-hudson.com uh michael hudson thanks so much for coming on counterpunch radio
1: it's great to be here it's been a, pl- a wonderful discussion thank you Thank you.